This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. Hey everyone, two quick things. First off, I am linking our new Discord server in the show notes. Uh, Please come and join us. We are going to have everything up and running here in the next few days. So it may not be launching here on Monday, but by Tuesday we should be good to go. Can't wait to see you all. Uh, That said, just a reminder, this is a Pokey College episode, meaning that it will have adult content and it may not be suitable for all listeners. So we do discuss some adult topics and adult themes in this episode. So listeners, be warned. Hey there, all you trainers, researchers, and scholars. It's time for Pokey College. So send the youngsters, picnickers, and Pokey kids off to bed and snuggle up and get cozy because it's time, baby. It's time. Welcome back to Pokey College, everyone. Uh, I am Madison. Joining me today is Brittany. And Kirsten. So today we're here talking all about reproduction. And I know we've given the warning here at the beginning of the episode. And I know Bagel New from Pokemon Go FM's lovely voice reminded you that this is not for kids. So I'm going to get that warning here. Uh, this is, is a episode that may include content not suitable for younger listeners. We are going to be talking about reproduction. Uh, both asexual and sexual reproduction. And we're going to go all over the place because today we're going to ask the most important question in any Pokemon game ever. Do you know what that question is, ladies? How do I get more Pokemon? The most Pokemon? Where did where that egg Pokemon? come from? Oh, exactly. where did that egg come from? I don't know. I play a lot of Pokemon Go. It comes from all over the place. <laughs> 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 Pokemon Go. People are just leaving eggs everywhere for me, guys. They're sending to me as gifts. So they're from all over. Yeah. Thank you. Well, for those who don't know, in the Pokemon games, there's a running joke that uh, starting in Gen 2, at the daycare, you'd leave two Pokemon there. And uh, the old guy, when you come back, would be like, we're not sure where it came from, but there was an egg. (laughs) And you're like, well, how the hell? Yeah, so we're not sure. So we're going to talk about reproduction. So the first question we got to ask is, what is reproduction? Is it making babies? Is it copying yourself? Is it that thing you did in high school with a sock? It's definitely not that. Gross. The simplest definition of reproduction would be the production of offspring, which can occur uh, by a sexual or asexual process. Yeah. And so we know sexual process means that two partners are involved and asexual meaning that one partner is involved. So getting to the topic, we have multiple interviews here today. And I got to say, I want to give a shout out here before we begin to both Ray and Sessie for jumping in and doing one of the interviews. And Kirsten, I know you helped too. Thank you everyone on staff and on team here uh, for pulling this together. Uh, This episode and the next two we have coming have been something that I have wanted to do for, I think, I think maybe four years now. (laughs) Nice. So I'm really excited that we're doing this. I think this is a really cool episode. So our first interview though, and I'm going to introduce you, the first interview we have is with Dr. Renee Martin, uh, who's a postdoc at American Museum of Natural History, who studies deep sea fish, including macroevolution and how different organs have evolved across different species of fish. So to that interview. Starting with lantern, some species of anglerfish, which is based on, have a really unique way of mating. Some species use what is known as sexual parasitism. Um, can you just explain what is that? How does it work? Why might this animal have developed this type of reproductive adaptation? Deep sea anglerfishes, um, and the reason I say deep sea and not all anglerfishes is because there's a lot of different types of anglerfish that live in the coral reefs and they live on the, the bottom of the seafloor. And so this is just particular to deep seas. They are found all over the world, below 300 meters. So often we consider the deep sea at 200 meters or lower, or deeper, I should say. And they have evolved a lot of different things to 
live in this really dark, really highly pressurized, cold, deep sea area. And so one of those things is this type of reproductive mode, which is called sexual parasitism. And it's basically males are really, really tiny. Females are their normal female size. And so you have this thing called sexual dimorphism between males and females. But not only that is that some of these males in some of these species will actually attach themselves and temporary, permanently, it depends on the species as well. They'll attach themselves to a female when they find a female in the water column. And what happens after that, and again, this is species dependent, is that some of these males will actually fuse their bodies and their epidermis and their dermal tissues to the female. And so what ends up happening is the female and the male circulatory systems connect um, and the male becomes permanently dependent on that female for his nutrients. And she, the female, can kind of just pull and use the sperm whenever she needs to from that male. (laughs) That's like the most committed monogamy I've ever heard. Right, exactly. (laughs) Like you are there for life. And it's neat, too, because a lot of the species that this occurs in, the male has a really specialized jaw for grabbing onto the female. And why it's important? Why might they have developed this adaptation? Well, it's actually potentially favored by natural selection in the deep sea. So as you get deeper into the ocean, you lose a lot of organismal biomass. There's just It's really, really big, and there's less organisms that live down there. And so finding a mate in a very dark and very open place is probably pretty hard, especially if you can't really see them and how are you going to find them? And if you do find them, like how do you make sure that you guys are mating or staying together? And so this type of reproductive strategy where the male attaches himself and doesn't leave is pretty important for a group of organisms that it might be very, very, very rare to find a mate. And so if you just keep your mate with you the entire time, um, (laughs) she can reproduce frequently or, you know, once a year, I think some species do more than once a year, and he's just there all the time for her to use. So it is potentially reproductively um, adapt or advantageous to have sexual parasitism in this type of fish. So very different than what we're seeing at like the Pokemon daycare, living their best lives in the Pokemon world. So if we think about a lantern, how might this type of reproduction impact a Pokemon like lantern Maybe if it was in the real world, if it was in the Pokemon universe, how, how does that translate? So in the real world, I would guess it's kind of just similar to how it affects anglerfishes, right? Where males, it's beneficial to them because they find their mate and their female. Like if Lantern lived in the real world, that makes sense to me. But if it was in the world of Pokemon and we're talking about like how it might affect a Pokemon-based Lantern where they're maybe getting, getting caught by a trainer or doing attacks or something like that. Like, what if a trainer caught a male lantern and it was super tiny, but it had some sort of parasite type attack where it was like health draining or... <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. Like a leech seed or something. Yes. Yeah. Right. But, but for a lantern or if maybe like a trainer caught a female with a male attached, the female would have like boosted powers because she had a male. I don't know. Like, who knows? That's like, yeah, like the um the mega Kangaskhan. I don't know if you've played in the later games, but like the little baby in the Kangaskhan actually like comes out of the pouch in the later games and like gives the mama like extra like boosted stats and stuff. See? So Lantern yeah. can have that. <laughs> yes. Oh, that would be really cool. And it's such an iconic Pokemon, like water electric. 
Oh, I love Lantern. (laughs) Seahorses are known for having a really unique gestation strategy. I will just leave that open to you. How does that work? How rare is this type of gestation? What are the benefits of this adaptation? So in seahorses, the females, they, they do still have eggs, but what they do is instead of either broadcast spawning them or laying them a nest in a nest and brooding them, and even some fish, like, they'll brood their eggs in their mouths, seahorse females actually deposit their eggs into a pouch that is located on the ventral surface of a male. And males can actually hold up to almost 2,000 eggs, depending on the species, and they will have a pregnancy for around a month. And these eggs will hatch... The male will push them out, but before they hatch, he actually cares for them as they grow in the pouch. And I'm trying to think, but that pouch actually is really beneficial. It regulates salinity and, you know, for osmoregulation, he actually has nutrients that go into those eggs. And it it's pretty beneficial uh, in far as, as far as fish go. So although maybe only five babies will live in every 1,000, that like to adulthood, I should say, like there, he pushes them out, five of them might make it to adulthood that percentage is actually much higher than just regular fish spawning and so it's it's advantageous to have a pregnancy and to have like fully formed baby fish come out because they're just much more likely to survive in the wild than if you just lay your eggs you sperm all over them and then you both swim away happily forever leaving your spawn to who knows what so beneficial for the seahorses probably a burden for the male (laughs) (laughs) So how rare is that? You talked about mouth brooding, but actually having eggs be, you know, cared for, I guess, within the confines, like within a body, almost like we think of like human or mammalian gestation. So in fish, in anything, male pregnancy, it only occurs in seahorses. So it is very, very, very unique. And it's not just that like the female lays it into this pouch. This pouch has a lot of the same characteristics that a uterus of a female, like a female does. So it's as far as I know, only seen in the lineage that contains seahorses. So that's pretty crazy. So yeah, then how might this impact uh horsey or cedra in the games you know rocking up with a a pregnant (laughs) seahorse (laughs) so i think um the female like because i know you can get males and females in pokemon female it would probably free her up real good right she doesn't have a pregnant belly to deal with um whereas the male like you catch a male horsey or see you know and just like just rotund pregnant male would be i think kind of funny But he's also, because like I mentioned, he's giving nutrients to these eggs. So it probably really impacts him. He's probably going to be stressed out. He might not fight as well. Like who even knows? (laughs) Going to be a little bit slower, lower attack. Right, right. It it requires energy. Maybe he has like a little, you know, some sort of energy handicap that goes along with being a pregnant male, you know, horsey. (laughs) I do think though, (laughs) this probably wouldn't be good, but he might be good and have like an a pregnant horsey would have an additional uh, attack, maybe like body slam, but it might also not be very good. So. That's funny, the extra mass, but then also it's like... like you probably don't want to body slam as a pregnant yeah. you know, seahorse. <laughs> wow, lot, lot to take in there. Lot to take in. I don't even know what to think about Lantern now. What are your guys' thoughts? I just love all the role reversal that we have here. In humans, it's always like the male who's the provider. And in this anglerfish scenario, like, females providing everything besides the firm. <laughs> 
Only thing uh-huh. that male has to offer is a sperm. Male's kind of like broke, jobless guy who just started living in your apartment one day and you have to take mm-hmm. care of him. Yeah, what are your thoughts, Kirsten? Well, I mean, I think I just think it was super interesting. And I think it's like, you know, as you guys are bringing up, there's a lot of analogs in real life. But at the same time, you know, there's there's, there's different there's different iterations of that that we also see. Um, like, for example, the way that she brought the, up the examples of like, you know, Horsey or um, King Dredd, there are different iterations of the evolution. Yeah. Well, and honestly, this leads me thinking here. So a couple of things here. As we're going through this episode, I really want to think about how complex would it be if the Pokemon world's reproduction was similar to ours? And one of the things that started, I started thinking about was like, maybe if we left two lantern at the daycare, uh, the male would just like cease to exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like, you'll just like notice like an extra fin or something. <laughs> well, so that was my other thought too. They, they uh, I think they, they came up with a suggestion, but I was thinking lantern could work like, a, was it Dodunzo and, and Tatsugiri, where Tatsugiri goes in the mouth? Uh, and that activates an ability. Like, and I know they brought up, uh, I think Kangaskhan was their example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a cool thing mechanically, but like mechanically, if we could have lanterns, like male and female lantern have like a Dodunzo, uh, Dodunzo? I never say it right. Big fish guy with nice, uh, and Tatsugiri. Uh, if like we could have some ability like that, where like the male uh, lantern, when it comes on the field, cease to be there, but it's there with the female, and like the female lantern has an ability activate. I don't know, that'd be cool. But also, like, I was thinking about the male Cedra and King Drop, right? So, typically in Pokemon reproduction, we know that the female is the one that determines the sex, unless we have Ditto, but mm-hmm. Ditto's nasty, and we're gonna talk about Ditto later. Yeah. <laughs> But what if it was, like, the male Kingdra and Cedra that actually determined? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that would, like, vibe with the real world, like, reproduction, because mm-hmm. most of the time the female is providing some X chromosomes, and then the male is going to determine if the, the offspring's male or female, because does it give an X or a Y chromosome? So it it would just be yeah. more like real world. Real world words. Don't tell the tutors that. Uh, it's more like a Victorian era England where women were always getting shamed for, you know, only producing girls, and it was just the guy's fault because he was only giving X chromosomes. Well, yeah, and Henry VIII <laughs> had six whites, right? Absolutely, he did. Killed most of them, except for Anne of Cleves because she was nice. He was like, you know, just get divorced. <laughs> it's a good Broadway. Can I just say, you know, another thing that occurs to me about this is that, you know, in some cases, sex is actually determined by temperature regulation. So I'm imagining what if, you know, like, what if the Kingdra or, you know, the one of the different evolution, evolutions. What if it's just like changing the temperature as it wants in its little pouch? Or or if there was like two daycares and one had a, like, like because uh, I know we've talked about this on Lyle's Lessons, actually. And for those of you who've not listened to Lyle's Lessons, it's a delight. But mm-hmm. Lyle's talked about it on the crocodile episode. And I think we talked about it in another one, too, where there are many species of animals where that epigenetics influence comes into play, where temperature mm-hmm. actually has a direct influence over which chromosome gets picked or, you know, what sex traits get developed. Uh, mm-hmm. That'd be kind of cool to see worked into that game. Like, like if you had yeah, talent you had flame. Like, yeah, a daycare in like a Arctic region compared yeah. to like a... You know, desert type region. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. I guess it's no weirder than like Umbreon evolving at night and then Espeon evolving during the day, right? Yeah, maybe that's actually a temperature regulation thing. And those are epigenetic traits too. We did, uh, we did a whole thing on them with genetic expression. I think it was our first episode of the new cast with uh, our first guest episode, of the new cast with Dr. Horton. Yep. Uh, we did a whole big thing on that because, like, to me, that's just so fascinating. Well, and honestly, I w- the interview also had me thinking really quick before we wrap it up here is that maybe like Cedra and Kingdra could only mate with their own evolutionary 
Kamui family and not an egg group if it was the male determining it, since Pokemon breeding mechanics have it that the female determines. So if they, you know, if Cedra was the male, then like Cedra and Kingdra could only breed with other Cedra and Kingdra and not, you know, Huntail or whatever. Mm-hmm. Pokemon's weird. All right. Well, we have another guest, Brittany. Okay. So I'm going to introduce Anthony Barley from Arizona State, whose work is in evolutionary genomic studies how uh, species change over time and how species are related to each other with their DNA. Currently, his lab is studying the whiptail lizards, and uh, we're going to hear an interview with Ray and him. The first topic that I'd like, or the first question that I have for you is, what is parthenogenesis? I know it from like the ancient Roman and Greek times what it is, but what does Uh it mean in a current modern day situation? So parthenogenesis is a form of asexual reproduction. So a way organisms reproduce and pass on their genes to the next generation that does not involve sex. So in this case, growth and reproduction of an embryo proceed from an unfertilized gamete. Uh, So usually an egg cell as opposed to a zygote cell, which which is formed by the fusion of two haploid gamete cells like sperm and egg as the result of sex. Is there a difference between this idea of full cloning and half cloning? Yeah, so the difference between full cloning and half cloning basically comes down to how much of the mother's DNA the offspring inherits. If the offspring inherits all the mother's alleles, we call it a full clone. And if they receive only half, they then we call it a half clone. So the reason that these differences exist is that there's actually a bunch of different cellular mechanisms that allow organisms to reproduce without sex. Basically, these differences come down to how parents copy their DNA and pass it on to their offspring. So if you ever took a biology class, you probably remember hearing about mitosis and meiosis, right? These different ways in which cells divide to form new cells. In humans, our somatic or body cells are derived by mitosis, the product of which is two cells that are exact copies, uh, that have exact copies of, of the DNA from the cell that divides. So some asexual organisms reproduce clonally with mitosis, and this leads to offspring that are full, are full clones, and they have all the mother's DNA. But then conversely, a lot of these organisms reproduce parthenogenetically using different forms of meiosis. So in humans, meiosis is the process by which we produce our gametes, our sperm or our egg cells, which unlike mitosis involves two rounds of cellular division. And for that reason, it's that uh, sperm and egg cells are haploid, right? So they have half the amount of DNA uh, in a typical cell, um, which is why when a sperm and egg fuse, you inherit inherit two copies of your chromosomes, one from your mom and one from your dad. Haploid cells are often not viable in most species with a few exceptions. And so uh, for organisms that reproduce parthenogenetically using meiosis, there is typically a modification of that process that causes these cells to restore that diploid state, basically the state of having two copies of each of your chromosomes. And the precise way in which that occurs basically determines whether the cells end up being full clones, half clones, or somewhere in between. What kind of animals do you see utilizing parthenogenesis and kind of what are the evolutionary benefits of it? Because in my, um, when I was learning about it back in the day, it was like so detrimental to potentially be doing this as a way of reproduction. Yeah, so I'll start with kind of what what organisms we see. So in terms of animals, there's actually lots of different types of animals that reproduce parthenogenetic, uh, which to me is one of the things that makes it really fascinating. Even though most animals reproduce sexually, 
Parthenogenesis has evolved many different times in a lot of different species. So invertebrates, we see it in many different groups of lizards, which are uh, the species that I study. We also see it in different forms, in frogs, in salamanders, as well as fish and sharks, uh, and then many different types of invertebrate, invertebrates as well. So different types of insects and crustaceans spiders, worms, even snails. So lots of different organisms. And many of those um, species include um, those obligate parthenogenetic species, which uh, I guess you haven't asked about that yet. <laughs> Oopsies, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, so I can just stop there. <laughs> And then what are the evolutionary benefits of having it or doing it that way? Yeah, so that's a really, really interesting question. The main reason we think that sex is so common is that the process of genetic recombination is really important and valuable from an evolutionary perspective. And part of the reason that we think that's the case is that at face value, there's actually a lot of theoretical benefits to being able to be reproduce asexually. So... This is what we call the paradox of sex, the fact that sex is so common despite all of the costs that it has. For example, from an individual's perspective, finding and attracting mates can be difficult, and even the process of mating itself can be dangerous. So in the most extreme um, form, think of sexual cannibalism. When you have sex, it means that you only get to, only get to pass on half of your genes to your offspring, not your whole genome, right? So you remember how meiosis works? Reproduction is really all about passing on your genes. So if you can reproduce parthenogenetically, you get to pass on twice as many of your genes for each of the offspring that you produce. And from a population and evolutionary perspective, uh, the need to have sex actually halves the rate of replication of a population because effectively only half the individuals in that population can reproduce. Conversely, if everyone in a population can reproduce by themselves, this doubles the rate that a population can grow at. That seems like it would be very beneficial on short time scales. And then finally, uh, in some sense, parthenogenesis allows you to avoid the waste of producing offspring that aren't very fit or successful. On one hand, like I mentioned, genetic recombination provides you this opportunity as an individual to potentially produce offspring that have genetic combinations that are even better than you have. But in some sense, because you exist at all, it must mean that you already have a good, pretty good combination of genes. And so the flip side to this means that all this genetic uh, shuffling is that some of the offspring you produce aren't, are going to have uh, worse genetic combinations than you do and aren't going to be successful. A, par a parthenogenesis allows you to avoid producing those. And it's for these uh, reasons that we think parthenogenesis is a very successful strategy over very short timescales, but that over the long term, the advantages of sex and genetic recombination must be greater for, for them to win out. I've heard that there's different types of uh, parthenogenesis that take place. And some of the ones that I have written down are true parthenogenesis, facultative parthenogenesis, gynogenesis, and hybridogenesis. Would you be able to touch on some of those and kind of what the differences are? Uh, so we'll start with true parthenogenesis, which is basically asexual reproduction without any involvement of males. So these are just populations of female individuals reproducing by themselves without having sex. So potentially how you assumed this works uh, since we started talking. So some animals break that rule in different ways, and the way they do that basically characterizes these differences. So facultative versus true or obligate parthenogenesis basically refers to if you have to reproduce this way. So some organisms can only reproduce asexually, and these are the true parthenogens. 
And some organisms can produce offspring either parthenogenetically or through sex. And we call this form of reproduction facultative parthenogenesis because they can do it facultatively. Uh, in other asexual species, sperm is actually required to fertilize the egg cell to initiate the development of that egg cell, but the males don't actually make a genetic uh, contribution to the offspring. And this is what we call gynogenesis. So a lot of, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of these parthenogenetic organisms evolve through hybridization between different sexual species. And it is the result of that evolutionary history um, that they're derived from these sexual species that uh, potentially the eggs still require that fertilization of the egg cell in order for it to um, start developing, in order to stimulate and begin embryogenesis and, and development. So they actually have to mate with a male from one of those ancestral species through which they formed uh, by hybridization to get the sperm to fertilize the egg, but then they throw out the chromosomes from that sperm. And so the offspring just have the DNA from the female, which is why it's still a form of parthenogenesis. Um, because the eggs can't just spontaneously start to develop like they do in truly parthenogenetic organisms. Hybridogenesis is basically a form of hybrid reproduction between different species in which fertilization occurs between two gametes, uh, and half the genome is passed on without recombination, and the other half of the genome that is inherited by the offspring contains mixed recombined parental genomes, right? Um, so again, sex is really all about this genetic recombination uh, and the benefits of that. And so you can think about this as like a hybrid reproductive strategy um, that is part sexual and part asexual, in which one of the parents is producing gametes in a parthenogenetic way, and the other is producing gametes in a sexual What types of Pokemon do you think would have the potential to reproduce in this way? Yeah, so there's a few different options that seemed most likely to me. So uh, one is that um, I was told about this Pokemon named Miltank, I think it's what it's called, uh, which in my understanding is a cow-like creature of which there are only females. So if that's the case, that sounds a lot like a parthenogenetic uh, species to me. Ah, that must good point. Parthenogenetically, if there's only females. Finally, there's uh, Ditto. Uh, which is apparently a Pokemon yes. that can breed with other species of Pokemon, which as we mm -hmm. talked about, um, hybridization is often associated with the evolution of parthenogenesis. So he seems like a good candidate too. And then lastly, I think it's also interesting that Ditto has uh, kind of this labile reproductive mode. Um, and so it is potentially likely that, or possible, ju that just like in the natural world, there are many species that are fac facultatively parthenogenetic uh, that we don't know about yet because of the fact that in some cases, this reproductive strategy can be re, uh, kind of cryptic if most species, are, if a species is mostly reproducing sexually, but sometimes reproduces uh, facultatively, parthenogenetically. Um, so perhaps it's underappreciated in both the Pokemon and the natural world. Shout out to Ray, though. Ray handed me a almost 30 minute long interview here. And I was like, oh, God, uh, it was really sweet. I feel I felt bad cutting out a lot of it. Rose, like, let me give you a full rundown of all of your research mm -hmm. and all of your experience. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to cut this. It's so good. Uh, but that might, you know, get to pop up uh, for Patreon supporters. Maybe these uh, unedited versions for all you mm -hmm. Patreon supporters. Uh, as we said, that's our goal. Uh, but I have so many comments I want to bring here. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts, though, first? 
I honestly wouldn't have thought that so many animals could participate for thanogenesis. Well, can uh, and actually Lila talked about that too in another episode. We talked about sharks. We found that out that certain uh, species of bonehead sharks can actually yeah. do that. Yeah, no, he did mention sharks and animals that can. That's so crazy, isn't it? I know. I was just thinking about how like a negative would be like one pair just passing on all these bad traits. Because mm-hmm. like Anthony had made like the note of how like, oh, they're, you know, a living creature and able to reproduce. So they must have OK traits. And I'm like, that's not always how that work. I've met some people <laughs> and I'm like, oh, can you just imagine them only passing on their traits? Fuck. Well, and, you know, the other thought uh, that goes into this too, like mechanic wise for the game is that uh, a lot of us who play competitive and like I've been doing competitive. I think this is the first generation where I haven't done any competitive. And mm-hmm. competitive breeding, like, you want them to pass on their traits. But there's also times like, okay, let's say, you know, I get a really, 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 really crappy um, hattering, but it has the egg move I want and it has the ability I want. So I'm going to try breeding it with something that has better IVs. But if it was like mm-hmm. parthenogenesis, you know, like, I would just get stuck with those crappy IVs over and over and over again. And that would be so frustrating. Or the abilities that you didn't want. Yeah, that would be incredibly frustrating too what are your thoughts Kirsten well I just you know I think that like they kind of bring up that um basically it just kind of highlights like yeah of course like there's there's benefits to orthogenesis but then like you were bringing up there's not and I think you know generally I think in, in some very specific circumstances it can be very beneficial to the organism but if the environment changes and you have like you know a very like you have the same if you have like very low genetic diversity in the event of a changing environment it's just going to it's not they're not necessarily going to do well because generally that genetic mixing is advantageous to the organism. And I just want to come back to it. I know we didn't put this in our note, uh, but like whiptails are a really great example because uh, the New Mexican whiptail, which which Sandlit and Salazel have basis on, and I know we talk about them at conventions a lot. They they are exclusively female and breed with the Northwestern, uh, I think it's the Northwestern whiptail. I don't quote me mm-hmm. on that one, but I know that there are two different uh, groups of whiptails that they breed with. But obviously all the babies they make are New Mexican whiptails and they are all female too. So it does it does kind of give me a little bit of like, okay, part of this is kind of right. Because I know people often will be like, well, how can a Pokemon only be female? Well, in the real world, this actually is a real thing and it really happens. And, and, and yeah, I think it's kind of cool to think about the fact that some of these things that people have made jokes about for years are like, oh, that couldn't happen. You're like, well, no, actually it could happen. It does happen. And once again, this is how intense and how complex biology is. Like, it's, I think it's astounding. Sorry, I didn't get excited there. <laughs> but like, imagine, imagine this too, like if all of your reptile mons could just reproduce on their own. Like you, you mm-hmm. leave like your, your snivy at the daycare and you come back and you have like four other snivies now. <laughs> and you're like, I left you by yourself. Like, what were you doing? Please explain. You have some explaining to do. <laughs> well, there's a sock right next to snivy. <laughs> Oh, girl. Oh, my God. You know, I was thinking that and I was like, don't say that out loud. Um. <laughs> You're allowed to because uh, you know what you know what Bagel Noob said, put those kids to bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> after hours, peak of science after hours. So the other thing I do want to talk about, though, there was one asexual reproduction type that we haven't really talked about yet um, is fragmentation. And I don't know if you know a lot about this. I know Ray originally wanted to come and help us do this episode to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I know fragmentation is something where an animal can split into part. And then those parts can regenerate into full creatures. And so we have to remember, like, regeneration is, like, where lizards can lose their tails and then they grow back. Yeah. I think Anolis do that, right? Yes. Shout out to Chelsea. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some animals where like if they like like sea stars specifically I know that if they lose an arm mm-hmm. yeah. certain certain sea stars can grow an entire new sea star out of that arm. And so essentially it is an asexual reproduction form for certain species and certain groups of animals where they can split and then from those split pieces form new holes. Yeah. I guess the analog would be like instead of like so I know it doesn't happen in lizards but I guess in lizard it'd be like if the tail also grew like a whole lizard and then the lizard grew a tail back and then you have two of the same lizard. I know it doesn't happen. Just I see that you were like mentioning like the monster Sarah cutting too. Mm-hmm. I've actually, Tell me about that. What is that? Well, it's plants. I've, I've, I here. I have one. Wait, Kirsten. Kirsten. So, what is that though? Can you explain it? Well, basically, um, at least like you know, during COVID, I got a whole bunch of plants. And the cool thing about some plants, like monstera and begonia, is that you can cut, you can cut at the node, and then it'll start growing roots if you just like put it in water. And then the same exact plant will grow from that, from just like a leaf, basically, um, yeah. which is very cool. And you know, in in, in a way, that's just, that's like a that's like clonal reproduction. It's the same thing, the same genetic material, just is more of it. <laughs> oh, um, my, we do that with potatoes. Yeah, but this pothos here that I have is actually, I literally just cut off a, part, a piece of my friend's pothos. Yeah. And- oh, yeah, I knew plants do that because we do that. I mean, Brittany knows because Brittany and I hang out in real life. Like, we're big gardeners. In fact, I can hear Kevin. Kevin just installed an irrigation system for our garden because we have all these mm-hmm. raised beds in our backyard. We have like five of them. Uh, but we do that with potatoes. Uh, well, you wait for them to grow little eyes and then you cut them into little cubes and oh. each eye has to be facing up and it will literally grow new plants. Uh, so we'll do that with potatoes when they start to go bad at the end of the season or like midsummer, And then we end up with a yeah. bunch of potatoes in the fall. Yeah, that would be the same. I think it. I think it would be the same type of thought process there. It makes me wonder what if, like, you know, what if you could do that with weeping bell or something? You just like cut off a piece of weeping bell, and then you get new weeping bell. You know, how many people have really thoroughly interrogated the possible reproductive <laughs> genetics of all of these? So who knows? Maybe, maybe this is how. Maybe there's more to this story than we know. I like. I like the idea of like your star me gets injured, and That's all of a sudden what I was I get, thinking too. Yeah, you have Are two you? star me's now. Yeah. You're like, oh, I got two of them now. It's okay. It's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I'm sorry. Your star use arm got cut off last week. Yeah, but I got two of them now. It's all good. <laughs> God, I didn't even have a pokeball for this second star me. God. Yeah, but I, I think that's really cool to think about the idea of like the you know these different uh, asexual reproductions as well as uh, you know as a way of like we'd have more Pokemon from daycares than we'd imagine. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go to the next one. So the next one, I I was lucky enough to interview Dr. Marie Nyman at the University of Iowa who studies sexual reproduction of all varieties, including asexual reproduction. Her major focus is on understanding why sexual reproduction is so common in the animal kingdom. We're going to go to the interview. Here we go. We want to talk about uh, essentially all sorts of reproduction. And I know that's what you study is is essentially sexual reproduction, but we're going to talk about non-sexual reproduction here. And I want to talk about, and I guess you can correct me here if I'm wrong about any of this. So like, what is hermaphrodism? Like, how common is it? Can hermaphroditic animals reproduce like asexually? Or can hermaphroditic animals reproduce sexually? Like, what's going on here? These are great questions. And they're actually a really important questions in the context of thinking about biology and how organisms reproduce. And this type of variation is is common and really interesting to biologists. So a hermaphrodite, from a biology perspective, is an organism that can produce both male and female sex cells, like sperm and eggs. So the hermaphrodite means that you actually have male and female function. It doesn't just mean that you have male and female parts. 
So to jump to the chase with respect to humans, what this means is that there really aren't human hermaphrodites because humans might sometimes have both male and female parts, but humans never have both male and female gametes, like both eggs and sperm. So the definition of a hermaphrodite has to do with function as opposed to maybe what we might think of as form. And a lot of different organisms can be hermaphroditic. Um, it's quite common in plants. It's also common in a lot of invertebrates, like snails often are hermaphroditic. A lot of worms are hermaphroditic. Um, even some fishes are hermaphroditic, but otherwise we don't tend to see too many hermaphrodites uh, amongst vertebrates. And so can they reproduce asexually then, and, or, and, but and sexually as well? Uh, it depends on the organism, and it sometimes even depends on what a particular organism is doing at a particular time. M most hermaphrodites are probably not actually capable of reproducing asexually, which is actually a different phenomenon than being able to fertilize yourself. And which, so it's a very common misconception. And so uh, a sexual organism is an organism that produces offspring, both without genetic contribution from another individual. So that could be similar to a self-fertilizing hermaphrodite. But an asexual organism also is making offspring where we don't see genetic recombination. So we don't see production of new combinations of mutations, for example, or new combinations invariance. Self-fertilization is a little different where it's an organism that has both male and female function, so it's a hermaphrodite, and for which those sperm and eggs are capable of fertilizing each other. And a lot of hermaphrodites are what is known as self-incompatible, meaning that even though they have both sperm and eggs uh, for various reasons, which are very interesting as well, either, for instance, they might produce the sperm earlier in the flowering season, let's say for some flower, they might make pollen before they make eggs so they can't fertilize themselves or they might have what's called a genetic self-incompatibility system where even if the sperm were to attempt to fertilize the eggs that would fail because these organisms have evolved some system that prevents self-fertilization from happening presumably because it's better to be fertilized by somebody else than by yourself again presumably because there are advantages of accessing genetic variation from a different individual well we know that there's advantages to genetic variation by looking at you know the royals ah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a great one. Was it they? And the royals are doing something that is similar to the challenges we see with self fertilization, <laughs> which is inbreeding. Fertil so, self fertilization is like the most extreme form of inbreeding. It would be like instead of having babies with your cousin, you have babies with yourself. And that's why it's <laughs> uh, I think that's how they ended up with the hairy prince. <laughs> uh gross <laughs> okay so i do want to ask uh, about i guess we can just go to asexual reproduction then i guess in general like what is the benefit of i mean either either the benefits of hermaphroditic sexual reproduction or even just asexual reproduction like whatever one yeah well some of the benefits are really are some between so there are some very interesting parallels with asexual reproduction and hermaphroditic reproduction one of the most obvious is probably what we think of as reproductive assurance so let's imagine that you're like some organism that tends to get blown by the wind somewhere where other members of your species might not be. So if you're often alone when you need to have babies, it can be really awesome if you could just make babies by yourself. So both self-fertile hermaphrodites, so a hermaphrodite that's able to successfully fertile itself, as well as an asexual organism that can just, you know, make a baby by itself, uh, could be uh, could could have an advantage under those situations. So that's one reason why we think both hermaphrodites and asexual reproduction might be favored. Hermaphrodites are different from asexual organisms in that they do fertilize themselves, leading to this issue with inbreeding that we just talked about with the royals, 
where they tend to see expression of these mutations that are okay by themselves, but are bad in combination. And if you self-fertilize, you tend to see accumulation of these combinations of bad mutations that might mean that you have what's called inbreeding depression, which can cause all sorts of problems. Asexual reproductions don't tend to combine those single bad mutations. It's because of the genetic differences in the way that they reproduce relative to hermaphrodites, meaning that asexual organisms don't have inbreeding uh, and they can actually preserve good combinations of genes for longer than hermaphrodites. So in a situation where the environment is staying pretty stable, being able to keep those good combinations of genes together for these asexuals could actually be an advantage. I get it. So the benefit then of asexual reproduction is that you can do it on your own, but then you're not running that risk of the mutation or the inbreeding risk. Yes. And you're not breaking up good combinations of genes. That makes sense. So by definition, because sexual organisms have this recombination, they actually do break up good gene combinations, which is a really troubling sort of challenge for biology to fix. Because it's like, why would an organism that's working, like if you by definition grow up and reproduce, you're pretty successful. So why are you taking these genetic combinations? that worked well and breaking them up. And the answer is often, well, it must be something about the environment is changing in a way that makes new gene combinations good. But we actually don't really yet know what those advantages are. So what other forms of asexual reproduction do you see like in your own research? Like what are the benefits of those as well? Well, it's they could include these advantages of reproductive assurance. It could include these advantages of keeping good combinations of genes together. Another really important advantage associated with asexual reproduction is that if you are an asexual organism, you don't have to devote any resources to either males, like you don't need to make any sons and you don't need to devote any resources to male function. Like, let's say that for hermaphrodites, they don't have to invest in pollen instead of eggs. And if you can then use all of your resources for female function or for females instead of half resources for male function and half for female function, you can make twice as many eggs or you can make twice as many daughters as an organism, a sexual organism versus asexual that has to make sons along with daughters or a non-hermaphrodite that has to invest in male function along with female function. The organisms that don't need to bother with the male function can make more females or more or have more female function. The advantage of that is that only females can directly reproduce. So a lineage like a hermaphroditic lineage that's investing all in female function is going to grow faster because it's going to produce more eggs than a lineage that has to also invest in male function to the detriment of female function. And the analogy with sexual versus asexual organisms is, is the same in that an asexual organism that can invest 100% in, in daughters will grow much more quickly than a sexual lineage that has to also invest in these kind of useless sons that only are around to fertilize the females. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not laughing. <laughs> you can laugh. You can laugh. It's, it's something yeah, that... Yeah, no, for sure. Fun hearing not every not not everybody and especially especially the the males don't seem to really like as much as the females. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So I'm gonna ask you and I'm gonna explain what this is first. So there's a Pokemon called uh, Wu Chen. It's a snail. It's like a snail snail oh. slug thing. And it's like yeah. this gigantic, uh, and I'm not going to lie, I haven't even gotten to it yet because my life is so busy that the game that came out in November, I've still not beaten. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, I'm like maybe like three or, or two, two thirds of the way through and I'm like, I, I'll get to it one day. <laughs> 
mom life, right? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't sleep ever. So, but like this thing is like this rare, legendary snail slug creature that like lives on its own and almost like locked away. Like you imagine almost like, like Indiana Jones-esque, like Temple of Doom kind of like, okay, it's way in the back. Like only the bravest can find it. But like with a creature like that, like what would be a benefit of like asexual reproduction? And also like if the snail is by itself, then a huge advantage of asexual reproduction or self-fertile hermaphroditism is that the snail could make babies all by itself. It does not need any other member of its species around in order to reproduce. And that's a huge advantage. Because I've often joked uh, that in Pokemon, it does label the sex next to the name when you find it. Yeah. But then there are some that don't have it at all. Oh, that's So like the really rare ones don't have it. And I've always said, well, that's why. They're clearly like asexually reproducing somehow or like self-fertilizing, like clearly. Yeah. It's not like they don't reproduce. Like (laughs) it has to come from somewhere. That's true, right? So that I imagine, and just correct me if I'm wrong, that like if you're a Pokemon trainer and you like you leave it uh, at a daycare, like you might come back and you left one, and there might be multiple babies now and you're like well so it's like this risk of that you never know when you're going to have a baby if you had a pokemon like that i think that's possible and this kind of thing actually does happen sometime in zoos have you heard about like like, yeah that i knew about (laughs) so i might but this happens both with self-fertilizing hermaphrodites and these occasional parthenogens it's like when they're in sort of dire straits when they're like oh my god i haven't seen someone else in my species for like years or when the environment is really bad, I'm just going to take a chance. And I know that this type of repro- not I know, but, you know, biologically, they the conditions are such that they only reproduce in these ways if they're desperate. You know, they're like, this is making a baby, even if it's parthenogenetically or, or uh, selfing, self-fertilizing is better than no baby yeah. at all. So I'll take this chance because I'm in a rough situation. And so that might benefit. There's also another, there's, there's a slug Pokemon that is literally mm-hmm. like made of like fire and like lives in a volcano. Okay, you know, like that might be a benefit then too, because like you know, like other things might not be near you then. Same kind of yeah. idea. That makes sense. Absolutely. That makes sense. Whoa, lots to take in there. Uh, I had a lot of fun with her. What are your thoughts, Brittany? I actually learned a ton there. So much that I didn't know. Um, I wasn't aware of like the form versus function ordeal, and that like there were not true human hermaphrodites. It's like hentai lied to us. Yeah, it did. Hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, basically just thinking of so after listening to this I was like I, ju- I just wanted to see what, what's around on the internet you know what, what does the internet think about Pokemon and hermaphrodism and let me tell you it got it got kind of weird but um, <laughs> More I, was like, I was like this, 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 this can be a little disturbing uh, maybe maybe it's too much for people but um, apparently in the debut episode of Staryu back in the early generations apparently the Pokedex said that Staryu is hermaphroditic which I just found very interesting and then the thread got weird people were like how could it be a hermaphrodite blah 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 it's a it's a it looks more like a bro chap blah, blah why are you sending genders to sorry anyways man people get so angry at science for no reason constantly anyway i just found that kind of interesting and that made me think you know if it has like both if it has um both sets of chromosomes maybe that i don't know this is anything to do with um with like the regeneration or like the the aclonor production but i just found it interesting maybe that's a way of then like maintaining you know genetic diversity but i don't know you know i, I i've never read a peer-reviewed article about you know the genetics of staryu so someone has to interrogate that maybe you need to start that yeah i should definitely start that that's going to be that's going to be my my next paper <laughs> here's my next question are all legendary pokemon hermaphrodites and is that why they're genderless because mm-hmm. they, they like as a kid you're like well both are there i don't know that means oh like my entity got both i don't know how what to call it they are (laughs) they them 
Yeah. Um, but like, like, because like, here's the thing, and I know like a lot of people are like, and I understand mechanically why legendaries can't reproduce. But if you think about Pokemon as Pokemon and you're like, well, this, mm-hmm. like, they have to reproduce somehow or it can't be there. Mm-hmm. Just end of discussion. It had to have come from somewhere. Well, I mean, and yeah, it's fa- like, how, how do you have them in the first place? Or is it really, what if they're just like, yeah, I agree. Like, we're, yeah. Well, we've seen things in like the anime where there's like baby uh, Lugia and stuff. So we mm-hmm. like there's been hints that like it exists. But my thought was like, oh, okay, well, maybe the reason that it always marks as non-gendered is that they're hermaphrodites. They are mm-hmm. true hermaphrodites and and able to reproduce either way, which would make a lot of sense too as a legendary creature because then you have the ability when you have so few. Thinking back to like we talked about Wu Chen, because there's so few of you, you can reproduce whenever you are able to see someone else. Uh, that was one thought, or the other thought I had was that they're asexual. You know, just Zapdos is laying a bunch of Zapdos eggs whenever they feel like it. Mm-hmm. Percentageically. What other Pokemon do you think we could could benefit from this, like these asexual reproductions that we we're talking about here? Oh, Petalo. Mm-hmm. <gasps> there's no males. Oh yeah. There's zero males, so it would have to be some sort of asexual type reproduction unless they're cross breeding with another, you know, type of Pokemon. No, Petalil's like, get your whimsicott away from me. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So it would have to. Uh we have one more interview though, and I'm gonna have you introduce us to it, Curse, and who we who we're gonna be meeting with. Tell us about them. Okay, everyone. So Dr. Dr. Robert Denton is currently an assistant professor at Marion University. Um a big Pokemon nerd like all of us, uh, who studies in, who studies amphibian genomics. Uh, what is cross-species reproduction, and how does it work? So, unlike uh, the world of Pokemon, biology of species and what makes a species or a type of uh, animal is is very different. There's a there's large continuum, and it's very messy about what we call a species and what we don't. But typically, when two organisms that we consider a species that are their own separate biological group interbreed with one another, uh, we call that hybridization. Sometimes hybridization works between species and, and produces something different or something new, but most of the time it does not and it doesn't work at all. So do you have any examples that some people might recognize? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's many of them. I mean, a, a very common like farm animal example are things like mules. Of course, you know, mixes between horses and donkeys that are then sterile and unable to reproduce mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we have lots of really good examples of of species that arose via hybridization, especially in in plants. This is really really common. But there's lots of things that uh, prevent these things from happening. So if you think about reproduction, it's really complicated. So two organisms have to be in the same place in the same time. They have to be able to recognize one another as potential mates. If they go through those steps, well, then their genetics have to work together in a certain way where those those embryos actually develop. And then those organisms that get produced, they might not be as competitive compared to the species that they come from. And so they might not actually be able to survive and compete, and they might not actually be able to breed themselves. And so there's really several very complex checkpoints that prevent this from being very common amongst animals in the real world. So just to be clear, does a liger count as a cross-species reproduction? Are those even real? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think those are real that have, you know, produced in like zoo environments and in captivity. Yep, so that's a common one that people use. I'm not sure if they have a lot of health problems and things like that. That's a very common thing with hybrid kind of novelty species like that is that they're not always as healthy and robust as as the groups that they come from. But even though even though I say that 
this is something that's relatively rare, it is. But if we look back and kind of use genetics to tell us what's been happening over long, long periods of time, we know that most you know, branches on the tree of life have a great deal of crossing between them. There's mm-hmm. periods where hybridization happens and then it stops. And there's this kind of borrowing of genetic material that's a, a signature in the DNA of many, many living. So are there any animals that only reproduce by a cross-species reproduction? Is that even possible? Or that, that's like the only way they have? Yes, there's some really strange examples of this. The one, the one that I'll specifically mention is the one that we study in my, my research group. It's a species, or not necessarily we would even call it a species. It's a group of salamanders that are all female. They're in the genus Ambistema. They're found across sort of the Great Lakes region of North America. What makes them really unusual is that they're females, but they can quote unquote steal sperm from males of other species. They take that sperm and they use it to kind of generate their own eggs. And most of the offspring that get produced are clones of mom. But occasionally that extra genomic material from the males will sneak in to the next generation. So they're sort of stuck in this weird gray zone between asexual and sexual reproduction where they they reproductively interact with these other species, but they don't necessarily need them. Um, so it's an unusual scenario. And even though we understand most animals reproduce sexually, there's lots of examples that do not, that, that buck this, whether they're all female or all male, having their own little workarounds. Uh, mm-hmm. to those. So are there also, so, you know, we talked about like these salamanders are only females. Are there any that are the reverse that are only male? It's much more rare, but there are some examples. So there's a group of, of clams that do this. Corbicula mm-hmm. clams are male. And I think technically they, they have the ability to be hermaphroditic, but they're, they're male. And then their female portion of their anatomy doesn't actually participate in reproduction. And so they are male lineages that remain over time. It's much more common for organisms that reproduce this way to be female because they already have the anatomical features to create the eggs, uh, which might be a little bit of a limiting step. And and those exist across a huge diversity of animals from fish to amphibians to lizards uh, to, to re- other reptiles. There's lots of different examples. Can you kind of like explain like on five why you think that that would be more common to have a, you know, female only species versus male only species? Sure. Well, there's there's a few reasons. Some of them some of them are are genomic in origin and and DNA. Others are simply just having the reproductive structures to make eggs. And so through a, a trick of the way that sexual gametes like eggs are divided up, they can sometimes have a little shortcut to produce eggs that are actually developing without the process of combining egg and sperm. Why can't every animal, like you were mentioning, it's not very common for different species to reproduce. So maybe if you could talk about that just again a little bit more. Why can't every animal reproduce with other species? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So if you think about it from a really purely like economical point of view, if you're an all-female species, you don't have to waste time finding a mate. You don't have to compete with males of your own species for resources everyone gets to reproduce directly. And so in a short order, you can predict that a species like that would outcompete and outnumber 
others that are made of males and females. And there's lots of good evidence that that is the case in the short term. It's a good thing to not reproduce sexually uh, in, in many cases, not all. But we know that they don't last very long in evolutionary time. So eventually the advantages of sexual reproduction, this whole remixing your genome between generations sets a species up to be much more flexible and robust over really long periods of time. You have a really sudden change in climate or you have a really nasty disease that wipes out a certain number of individuals. If you're all clones of one another, you're really susceptible to those things and going extinct. And so we have lots of examples of non-sexually reproducing animals, but we don't have many of them that are really old. They kind of seem to pop up, go extinct amount of time, pop up again, um, versus some of these sexual species that have been around for really, really long periods of time. So I'm wondering if you, how does like the, you know, how does your field of study explain Pokemon breeding mechanics, or what do you think is really going on there at the nursery? I had to look up some basics on Pokemon breeding mechanics because I wasn't familiar enough to know much about that question, and it was I I read about this interesting dynamic of. Um, Pokemon types that had to be in certain groups to even work together. And then, you know, some of them, there's groups that only have females, some that only have males, some that have both. And so it's a little bit of mix of some of the real biology things going on there, right? So there's only certain things that are similar to one another enough to actually reproduce with one another. Um, some of them are really similar, like if it's a male and a female within the same type. And some are really different, like if it's two different types of Pokemon that that only exist as males or females, but they're somehow compatible with one another. And then the, the one, the other thing I noticed about it is like, at, as in real life, it very much skews towards the, the female. So the, the offspring are more likely to be the same type as the female, which makes sense. The, the, you know, the driver of having those features to create the offspring. Well, as far, as far as I understand in the games, when two different types, you know, breed with one another, it's not as if they produce a uh, something that's intermediate to both of them. I've seen those things online. You can take the two sprites of the Pokemon and make like the weird chimera of them, of, of how they would look and how those end up looking really funny. Well, you never, those never appear in the games, right? So there's never any true like hybrid between two types. It's always like a very black and white, one or the, one or the other. And in real life, of course, that's not how it works. If you mix chromosomes and genomes together of two species and they work out, they oftentimes have characteristics that are somewhere in between the two parents. Yeah. I'm going to go first here, but like, like just the whole cross species reproduction here in the animal kingdom. And again, it makes me think of uh, the whip tails like we mentioned earlier, where we do know mm-hmm. that there are animals that do that. And I, I, I want to point note that that cross species, that reproduction is not hybridization, right? Because like yeah. the whiptails are still going to make female New Mexican whiptails. They're not going to make some brand new like Superman whiptails. Like I don't, I don't, you know, you, it's not like where you mix a t- lion and tiger and you're like, that is a mistake. Okay. But I was just thinking that like, you can't look me in the eye and tell me that giraffe rig isn't the result of hybridization. <laughs> it literally looks like you just took two separate animals and we're just like, Ksh. Here, you think you think it's like this. a weird mutation from like hybridization? Yes, that's not that was not supposed to be like that. Someone made a mistake. 
a I think it's actually supposed to be based on a character from Doctor Doolittle, if I'm not mistaken. But I like your take much better. No, I think your take it's much not. Better. It's two Pokemon. It was really dark, and maybe they got into the wrong potion and were a little bit tipsy, <laughs> and all of a sudden we had this. To me, that just looks more like some kind of. The thing is, like, okay, whatever, whatever makes up giraffe rig. It's like a giraffe, and then whatever, like TF that thing is. To me, Chomp I'm like. Chain. It's a chomp chain. A chomp chain, like, like how are those able to reproduce just like on a on a fundamental like mechanical level? To me, I'm like, maybe that seems more like a like a grafting situation, honestly. But in any case, I think I like that take. Though I'm never gonna unsee that. Thanks, Brittany. You're welcome. What are your thoughts, Kirsten? Um, so I know when I spoke talk to, to Dr. Denton, um, we were discussing that they're just sometimes sometimes like species don't reproduce or they don't hybridize because like there's there's mechanical, there's temporal, like sometimes they're just not in the same place at the same time. Sometimes it's not physically possible, right? Like technically maybe a chihuahua could mate with a 10,000 pound husky, but... You're telling me my skitty should not be able to reproduce with Waylord? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because they can. You know, mechanically impossible. Um, no, they do probably. though. Well... They do. Same egg Okay. Group. Well, okay. But they should. Mechanically difficult, <laughs> let's say. Um, <laughs> that was done in a lab. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, basically, I'm just thinking. I was thinking about like you know these barriers to reduction. Like sometimes they're not in the same place at the same time. And what I was thinking of was like the one of the coolest examples of the next, the most recent generation, which is Wiglet and Diglet, right? Because they look super similar. They look the same, but they live in like kind of just intrinsically exclusive situations where you have Wiglet living like on the water, then you have Diglett, which is allergic to water, basically, which live in different places at the same time. But if theoretically they could get together, like, you know, would would that combination of Wiglet and Diglett, would it be fitter or would it be weaker? Do you know what I mean? I'm wondering if it would like have that hybrid figure or if it would be like some kind of, I wonder if you that. I'm just very curious to see what that combination would come out like. It would be Wiglet. Diglett. No, Dwig. This left me thinking that we should actually have at some point introduction of hybridization mechanic. Maybe mm-hmm. not for everyone, but like maybe certain species when they do breed together, it creates like a weird hybrid that cannot reproduce like it's genderless. Mm-hmm. But like that'd be a cool mechanic to introduce and it'd be a really easy one to throw in. Mm-hmm. Like, all you know, you have to have a male of whatever this is and a female of this and only mm-hmm. that combination creates this weird thing. But that weird yeah. thing can never reproduce. Well, I mean, that, that, that I know that Dr. Denton and I spoke about, like, you know, ligers and mules, which would be a very similar ex- example of that, basically. So, yeah, it would, and that totally has real-world analogs. I think that'd be really cool um, to, to see, like, mechanics like that introduced into the game at some point. Honestly, though, I do want to point out, like, hybridization, that also has to do with us, too, though. Aren't humans, like, homo sapiens, technically are hybridizations of Neanderthals and homo sapiens, aren't we? Oh, Pretty yeah. There's, like, head. I believe so, yeah. Because we carry... Neanderthal DNA, don't we? A lot of us do. Actually, I remember I did like a 23 in me and it was like, you're 4% Neanderthal or whatever. And I was like, <laughs> and I, w- I was really happy because my, um, my, my my husband was like, I'm 3% Neanderthal. And then I got mine back and I was like, I'm more Neanderthal than you because he was so proud of it. <laughs> but, um, but in any case, like, I, I have... I happen to know a little bit about this, but yeah, it's like a lot of, so some portions, like basically throughout the lineage of human history, there have been different instances in which like Neanderthals have made it with um with humans and you can like pick up little fragments of those like neanderthal signals in the human genome which is just super interesting and you know some have it more than others and there's like very complicated like math ways of approaching exactly how much you have that's actually specifically known as introgression which is like you know picking up these pieces of 
distant matings in the genome. It's cool. Honestly, this whole thing is super interesting. So we're going to wrap it up here, though. And I just want to leave this with a few notes. So asexual reproduction is very expansive, right? Everything from self-fertilization with hermaphrodism to parthenogenesis to cloning to fragmentation and more. And it brings the benefit of being quick and reliable. In the Pokemon world, it would mean Pokemon could possibly reproduce on their own. But speaking of like hermaphrodism, that brings the possibility of some Pokemon could be both male and female, meaning they could reproduce more and more and have easier access to being able to reproduce. That said, the implications for the Pokemon that are male only or female only, we now know that this could happen, but possibly they should be able to recreate their own species without Ditto. Ditto really shouldn't be necessary. You know, we also should see hybridization between Pokemon and perhaps not only reproducing whatever that female is. But either way, whatever changes come in the next generation and in the next few games, we're going to be asking, where did that egg come from? Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.